Welcome to Dog Capital. This is an episode we recorded with the indefatigable Osman Chu. Osman joined us from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and Ben and I were recording, as always, on Ngunnawal Country. We acknowledge the custodianship and the rights of the peoples on whose lands we make this show. Sovereignty was never ceded, meaning this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Huge thanks to Oz, who joined us to talk about whether the Australian Labor Party can still be a vehicle for the left in Australia. And we're at a moment where sort of all, all contradictions are made. So I've got it for the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. Capital. Go! Capital. Go! Capital. Go! 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 international, but we're from cameras. Hello, welcome to the show. Welcome back to Dole Capital. We're back. It's been a little while. We've had a little break, um, just over kind of over the summer. Um, it has been uh, a good little January break. Yeah. But now it's March. Yes, but now we're back into gear. Yeah. And uh, we'll be coming to you from Canberra, um, bringing you all the the latest um, in you know analysis and news of the struggle from the uh, the nation's capital. The Bush Capital. Um, how are you going, mate? Look, fantastic. We're getting into it. Really excited to get Osman on today, who's our special guest, because we are talking about some fun stuff today. What are we talking about today? Basically, we're going to be having a, a chat about something that's uh, it's a subject that's near and dear to the show. It's a perennial topic of discussion here. That's organising for a more left-wing Australian Labor Party. Um, what we're asking is, uh, can the, Australia, the Australian Labor Party be a vehicle for socialism in the 21st century? And look, our special guest is Osman Chu, who, um, yeah, fantastic to have you here, Osman. Uh, thanks for having me on. All right, fantastic. Well, look, Osman, for people, who are listeners who aren't aware about Osman, and you should be if you, if you have been around following um, things on the left, but uh, Osman is a, yeah, really insightful um, person, has done all sorts of research and work over many years. He's a long-time socialist and has played an inspiring role uh, educating and agitating, coordinating labour left currents in the ACT in New South Wales and mm-hmm. beyond. Um, in terms of that, I, I was I, well, very impressed with Osman's newsletter that he's had going for years now. You've you've built that up really from not much at all, Osman, and that's still going. It's always got the educate, educate, organise. I think in it doesn't it in the byline for that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I think it's it's a key thing. It's unless you keep educating and agitating, like like what are you organising for? Mm. Yeah, that's right. And look, um, Osman's re- recently done some fantastic work advocating around um, more co- a more culturally and linguistically diverse Labor Party and a more uh, inclusive political culture in Australia. But uh, in particular today, we actually are talking to Osman about something that I've known Osman has been really passionate about for, for many years, which is a more democratic and open and empowered Labor Party. So glad to have you on today, Osman. Uh, but we would also definitely encourage our listeners to look up Osman. And how would they best way for them to get your, your excellent newsletter that you put out, um, you know, every couple of weeks or so? Uh, so probably the best way is I have a link tree that comes off my Twitter account. So I think, you know, follow me on Twitter and, you know, go through that and you'll see the various little projects I work on. Um, so my Twitter account is Red Rabbler Oz. So, you know, Red Rabbler, not Rabble. <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah, that's probably the best way. All right. And we'll, cool. we'll pull that in the episode notes. Uh, big, very quick shout out. I just remembered, and how could I forget, uh, is tomorrow. Uh, because we're recording today on the 7th of March. This show won't, won't drop for, for a little while. But uh, look, for all those people who are going to celebrate International Women's Day, which falls on the 8th of March, all solidarity and yep. uh, empowerment to you. Big ups to all my so sisters out there. Yes, that's right. And in particular, uh, a big sort of, you know, let's remember that wonderful thing that happened in late February in Russia, which commenced the, uh, the Russian Revolution back in the, back in the day. Uh, all sorts of wonderful things that have taken place on International Women's Day uh, for women's liberation as part of that struggle that um, socialists care so much about mm. the liberation uh, maybe we of should, everyone. Maybe we should do like a Alexandra Kollontai reading for that. That'd well, that's, there's, there's stuff coming up for May Day in the ACT, which yeah. you're also pretty happy about. Some yeah. good poetry, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, that's going to be good. Yeah, yeah be good. Um, So we'll have more pl- to plug about May Day uh, in the ACT uh, shortly. Um but uh, anyway, let's get going. Look, Oz, you're you're the editor of Challenge Mag, which is the the left's kind of main um, you know output, uh, and you are a fellow at Per Capita Research as well. Um, but uh, what was it that kind of you know gave you your start um, in the in the movement? What what kind of like led you to becoming a socialist? Yeah, uh, well, I guess what 
underpins my own politics has really been in opposition to what I see to be injustice and uh, belief in equality. So when I talk to people, I think it's really important to understand, you know, what is the thing that led to political consciousness? And I think for most people, it's either they grew up in an environment where it was just normal and natural, or alternatively, there is an event as a catalyst that really leads to that awakening. Um, so for me, I would say that my own, beginning of my own politicisation began in the 1990s with you know, One Nation the first time around and Pauline Hanson um, and her inaugural speech where she decried um, Asian migration to Australia. Um, I, I wasn't a even a teenager at that time, but I can remember that visceral feeling that you're being told you do not belong in our society by an elected member of the federal parliament. And the fact that the federal government was unwilling to call her out on her racism, John Howard, pretty much refused to. And I think that really shaped me fundamentally. Um, but I think that started me on my journey, but I knew what I was against, but it took me a while to figure out what exactly I was for. Um, you know, I knew politics mattered and took an interest in it. Um, but it wasn't until I got to university that I really started to get a better sense of, you know, what I believed in personally. You know, I got involved with the Labor left at university in Sydney. You know, I studied political economy and that really shaped my understanding of the world, you know, the nature of capitalism and the importance of both power in our institutions. I think, you know, it's important to reflect that my own, the period that formed my own politics was a pre-global financial crisis environment and I think it's really important to understand that. Um, so, you know, it was the Howard era, so there was those constraints on what you thought was possible. Um, and I think at that time, socialism was seen in a very different light. And, and personally, I, for a long time, I had this struggle of, you know, oh, am I a social democrat? Am I a socialist? You know, real, and I've really come to the conclusion that I care less about the explicit label just because the term means different things to different peoples. So you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was different back in the in the nineties. There was a lot more um, in Australia, a lot more hesitancy to actually call yourself a socialist, uh, whether a dem. I mean, it's it's interesting now. Um, there is a lot more of a openness to be calling yourself a democratic socialist or a socialist. Would you Would you think? Yeah. I I would agree, and I think it's because there's that like live the mem the living memory of the Soviet Union has disappeared for pretty much anyone under the age of 35. Mm -hmm. So and I think that's why you see this real distinction between, you know, if, you know millennials, Gen Z, they're fine to term because, you know, they haven't understand, they, you know, they know of the history of the Soviet Union, but it's not a legacy that weighs them down because mm -hmm. they experienced that they were lived in an era of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, there's this yeah. quote from Karl Polanyi, <laughs> in the Great Transformation that I think sums up my political views. And he says that socialism is essentially the tendency inherent in an industrial civilization to transcend the self-regulating market by consciously subordinating it to a democratic society. Um, so, you know, it's, it sounds a bit bureaucratic, but it really means that you believe that markets should be put below democracy democracy democratic societies should control markets rather than markets controlling democratic societies yep. and that's mm -hmm. what socialism is about yep. and for me that sums up my politics and if that makes me a socialist then i am because that's yep. what i believe in mm. oh, that's, that's fantastic i just before we move on like also i'm kind of wondering like that um you guys are both like involved in you know uni student politics um the, in that that weird post-cold war I guess, like, period of about, what, 20, 15 years mm. um, where, yeah, I mean, it was like the era of the third way. And I, I was wondering, like, mm -hmm. if you guys might both reflect on, like, what place there was for socialism, socialist literature in, like, you know, campus, you know, young labour organisations or things like that. Mm. I mean, I, I can guess what I can say is that young labour now, especially on the left, is far more socialist mm. than it was then when I was involved at the time. 
Um, and I guess for me personally, like I was probably seen as one of the more left-wing people on the, you know, this sort of young Labor left. And personally, I'm, you know, fairly happy to not be on the left wing of the young Labor left because <laughs> I, you know, my own views were that my views weren't, you know, that left wing, mm. um, relatively speaking. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a huge shift, though. Um, in that, that period, there was definitely a, an opening for, uh, I guess, look, the far left had a, I think there was a brief window um, where they are actually able to sort of really... Um, I'd say um, megaphone their their views to a, a, a bigger audience because they're, they're able to say, look, we've consistently been against what happened in Russia and Cuba and whatever. Well, different degrees of you know confusion, but um, I know it did it did influence a lot of us who came uh, to uni in the nineties because there was a lot of things we we're having to deal with, which was the third way. It was neoliberal politics. It was the deregulation of universities, and the yeah, people were looking around for ideas. But yeah, Labor Labor was particularly the. I mean, there was no left Labor club at the ANU, and we've got another episode that talks about what, mm. what the left was like in the nineties in, in Canberra, particularly ANU, um, which people can go back to on our um, other shows at Dole Capital. Um, but I think, yeah, things have definitely moved moved on. But it was an important period. I think, um, I think, like '99 was the foundation of the the ANU's Left Labor Club, which was um, interesting because it modelled itself on, well, basically a interesting sort of thing that we took from the far left, which basically having a broad church. You know, where it was open to people no matter what their outlook was. The clever bit was that people involved in it use it as a clearinghouse and encourage people to get involved with the Labor Party independently um, from that. But mm. at the same time, I was quite happy to encourage people to, you know, do ideas and activism. Um, sadly, I, I think while a lot of people are running around saying oh, they're a democratic socialist, they, it, the world's different. The, the activism is obviously a lot, a lot the poorer in the universities. But we, we talked about that and we can talk about that more on other shows, I guess. Mm. I, th I think one of the real big things that has shifted in the last few years that has a global importance is essentially the social democratization of a large chunk of the you know US Democratic Party and the impact that is having globally. Mm. And I don't think that we should underestimate the impact that has because you know for a long time what was considered, you know, socialism was seen as a in, on the fringes of the US, like fringes to the point of effectively irrelevant for the vast majority of people. Mm. Um, yeah, when you and it was also seen to be like structurally the case. Basically, I think what's the the quote is that like socialism in the US founded on the shoals of roast beef and apple pie. You know, that it was there was something about the US um, about American US society that made socialism unnecessary. Well, Which was I mean, an incredible bit of ide ideological, like, um, mystification of the reality of the war between, like, the P Pinkertons and the and the yeah. union movement. But, yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because if you look at US history more broadly, you can look at... Um, I'm just trying to think. What, what the, there are a number of examples where you see the emergence of, you know, farmer labour movements, you know, the election of socialists into, you know, legislatures like in New York. But, you know, the farmer labour movement um, in the US, like one government, you had like state-owned banks and I think North Dakota. Um, mm, yep. And, you know, you had people like Upton Sinclair. It was, it was Sinclair, I think it was, who essentially won the um, gubernatorial nomination for the US Democratic Party. Um, a bit like, you know, essentially it was like Bernie Sanders in the 30s mm. yeah. um, running on ending poverty in California. Mm. Um, he, didn't win the, he didn't win the election, but, um, you know, there are a lot of examples where there was this proto-social democratic, you know, farmer labour movement mm. where they used the open primary system to take over, you know, state-based, you know, democratic or republican parties. Yeah. Mm. I think, I mean, taking it back to back to the Australian context, I, I think in some ways we've had that inspiring things. I mean, well, we're not just taking back, we'll edit this out a little bit. But overseas, um, we've had the, the Corbyn uh, movement, we've had momentum in the US, we've had the Bernie Sanders uh, things. They've obviously had a, a big impact on um, the discourse in Australian, in the Australian left about what's possible and the like. Uh, in some ways, um, some people have often said Australia is either um, we're either setting the um, the agenda or we're well behind. And I think uh, 
and I think we're definitely at the tail end of of whatever feeling pretty behind. I'm pretty behind. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty behind in terms of in terms of where where things are, are at. Although though I don't doubt there's definitely potential for socialist um, policies and arguments and and uh, a, a, you know an emerging movement. But that sort of leads me to like getting into a bit of a nitty nitty gritty um, question for us, Osman, and it's like. Um, you know, is is the Australian Labor Party is it the most viable way that that socialists can have a real impact on laws and policies of, of government in terms of holding you know state power? Is that is that the um, probably one of the best things we, that we can do right now, or, or are we in a situation where um, the party infrastructure? And we talk about this a lot on our show, and we've we've been advocating um, a lot in our community for a more democratic and empowered, open. Labor sort of politics um, is it you know we, our federal party system is is rife with all sorts of corruption and anti democratic practices like you know it, should we be doing something else um, or is or is Labor really um, the vehicle that we need to be in the the game that we need to be in even if we can't stand so many other things that things that happen in it yeah no I think that's an important question and an important debate for the left and. I think we we have to acknowledge there are different theories of change um, that are, I think, legitimate. But personally, I think if you are serious about power and using the state to create a better world, really the Labor Party is the most effective um, out of the available choices. And in part, I think it's because it's about what is viable Mm -hmm. and viable paths are shaped by you know, electoral systems, party systems, and local contexts. So if you, I guess the starting point is, you know, should the left be involved in electoral politics? And I think the clear lesson of the left, for the left in the last 30 years is the limitations of, you know, those horizontalist social movements um, that reject power and, you know, they, they, fo- they focus and privilege having, you know, direct action, you know, consensus, personal, the local, you know, it's been... Mm-hmm. I think characterizes folk politics. And while all those have their place, if that's all you're doing, it's being quite it's quite limiting. Mm. Now, sort of going beyond that, and if we say electoral politics does matter, I think it's worth having reflecting on other countries and the you know the anti-austerity movements that came after the global financial crisis and where their energies went. And I think by looking at the variety of nations where those energies went, you can see it's very much shaped by those local contexts and the structures and systems that exist. So you look at France, you look at Spain, you look at Greece, they went into effectively new parties. But if you look at the US and the UK, they didn't. They essentially went into existing structures. Why was that? Well, I think undoubtedly electoral systems and party structures played a big role. So Mm -hmm. the US and the UK having those single member electorates, you know, party like political systems dominated by two major parties. Um, You know, there's other countries having proportional systems and governments, but also in the US and the UK, both, you know, obviously the US has open primaries, but the reality is that the electoral, the leadership election for the British Labor leader was effectively done for an open primary. It just wasn't run by the states. It was run by the party. Um, you know, it was done in an attempt to sort of exclude the trade unions and sort of limit their power, but that massively backfired. Um, so I think that's an important context to, to think about when we have these debates about, you know, okay, you know, is Labor more viable? Is Labor the option versus, mm-hmm. you know, creating a new party or going to the Greens? Because I think it's really important for there to be viability. Um, and I think the fact is in Australia that, unfortunately, the only real viable parties of the left are closed parties. So they don't have, you know, open primaries. Um, it's And... The fact is, in most places in the country, we have single-member electorates with compulsory preferential voting, which acts as a reinforcement for the existing party system and covers up the fragility because it's harder for viable alternatives. Um, So, you know, with this argument, one could argue, okay, well, this might occur, but why don't we spend our time organising and getting involved with the Greens? 
Um, that's, you know, a common argument that people, socialists on the left, may put forward. And, you know, personally, I understand the attraction of the Greens um, to some who are socialists. But I think our experience has shown that they, particularly in our current electoral system, they really will only be a junior coalition partner to a Labor government. Um, and I think the experience of the ACT shows that, you know, while there might be improvements in some areas, it's still dependent on the willingness of Labor to accept. So, you know, even if we had a Labor Greens government, as we have had in the ACT, who have done some good things, um, it still requires a strong left flank internally within Labor to push the agenda because it's not enough for there to be Greens in government. And, you know, I understand the scepticism that people might have because it doesn't seem viable for, mm. you know, the left to really make an impact from the Labor Party. But, you know, there have been wins. I think it's, it's harder to see because Labor hasn't been successful federally. But if you think about, you know, at a state level, you know, things that state governments have been doing on insecure work, um, you know, there have been reversals of privatisation in Australia, Queensland, is reversing the privatisation of prisons. W, the WA government is reversing privatisation in hospitals, in the water system. These are state branches where the ALP left is far stronger than other branches, um, as well as, of course, you know, shifting movement on, you know, a range of social issues like, you know, the, the criminalisation of abortion. Yep. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think for me... It's about the systems, but also viability. And I don't think we can underestimate the importance of viable, a sense of viability to attract enough people that feel it is willing to spend their time and effort. Um, you know, viable projects attract people because they see it's worth investing the time and energy. And in the Australian context, if we think about the only other viable parties they've really been personality-based parties that are infused with anti-politics. None of them have been explicitly left-wing or socialist. You think of Cata, you think of Palmer. I mean, you know, even, you know, not, not explicitly a left-wing party, but, you know, the Democrats is essentially Don Chip with anti-politics. Mm. And, you know, its success really depended on whoever the leader was. Um, and the only successful parties of the left have come out of, social movements so obviously if the labor party the trade union movement if the greens you know the environment movement and the peace movement and i don't see any, another new party that can beat the electoral thresholds emerging out of any existing movement so really for me that leaves you know two options labor of the greens and for me if we want to get the best bang for our buck frankly mm. it's about spending time and energy within the labor party um, um, not pretend. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, I just want to pick up something you mentioned there with this, this idea that the Labor Party needs to become senior part, like se senior um, partner in a co left coalition, um, which obviously involves the Greens, might involve other smaller social movements and parties, but um, crucially the Greens. Um, so I wonder if you can sort of comment on what you think the sort of main barriers inside the Labor Party that maybe what structurally needs to change for the Labor Party to be able to be that. Um, and I suppose what I've got in mind particularly is just like the like pretty dispiriting um, like pathologies, I guess, that run through the Labor Party about about the Greens working with Greens members of Parliament, other Greens volunteers, um, and how much of a barrier that is going to be to like healthy collaboration. It, it is even in the ACT where we have been in coalition government. Hmm. I think there's a, a range of factors that influences the relationship between you know, Labor and the Greens. Um, I, I think there's firstly this sense of a zero-sum game. Hmm. So both people in the Labor Party and the Greens, they see that if they are seen as being too close to one another, there is a, it, it does not benefit them electorally hmm. um, and that they see that they are taking seats off one another. So it's a zero-sum game. Hmm. Um, in many people's minds. I would also add that there are other factors that overlay it. So for me, the two, I, I, say, I see the two sort of extremes of this as 
probably extremes is the, be- the not the best way to phrase it. Like the two two ends, mm. one of you know successful coalition governments, the ACT. The other is where it just completely implodes, and that's Tasmania. So we have two examples, you know, two polar opposite examples, and it's important to think about okay, why does the ACT work, and why does Tasmanian why did Tasmania not work? I think firstly in the ACT there is an acceptance that minority government is the norm. So there's only ever been one majority government in the ACT. I think that helps a lot in the mindset that everyone has. Secondly, I think the ACT compared to Tasmania doesn't have a lot of the issues around resource extraction. So coal, um, forestry, mining, which adds a huge layer to it. So obviously there's issues around, you know, use of land, but not it's not in the same, not the same. And I'd also add that broadly speaking that from my experience, the ACT is quite broadly socially liberal in the ALP. So regardless, other than, you know, bits of the SDA, whichever part of the Labor Party you're from in the ACT, you are pretty socially progressive. And so that's less of an issue, yeah. Mm. And I think I think those are sort of factors that may make it easier to work it, for it to work in the ACT. I think the unfortunate thing is the rest of the country is more like Tasmania than the ACT. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's the issue. I mean, whether or not that changes, it's hard to see. But I think understanding why it's working in the ACT and why it's working in Tasmania is really important to working out how can we move forward in a way that helps the left more broadly. So um, yeah, I think I, I think yeah that, that the collaboration bit's the key bit really on the ground though. I think Jacob was um, pointing into that, but I think you, you're dead dead set right about how that that's worked practically in Tasmania and, um, and the ACT. We share a very similar electoral system. Uh, Hair Clark, uh, that being that, but uh, it, it is interesting though. Like say in New South Wales, like well, you might have the it's a different electoral system. The Greens aren't. Um, you know, big, the, the big player in terms of, but on the ground in some some electorate style, like if there's at least, um, you know, people just being a little less uh, little less nasty to each other, uh, we might actually have a better sort of politics out there with the community in general. But I think that yeah. the, another factor in that that pre- sort of probably prevents people from forming healthy working relationships um, or even just sort of acquaintanceships um, is. The way that everybody perceives the federal party's electoral strategy, which mm. is at the moment very much like a sort of small target strategy, and there's a sort of really keen awareness of a sort of failure from the federal leadership to lead on a certain, a few crucial recent social issues. Um, the the big one that comes to mind, obviously, being the rate of the dole, um, and then climate change as well. Mm. Um, that. Because federal labor is so far away from viewing itself, I think being able to understand itself as looking at coalition government or minority government, um, it really doesn't even countenance the the possibility yep. of of yeah of of leading on these things that are sort of seen as pet issues for the Greens mm. and Greens members. I think there's also the assumption that the Greens will you know support a Labor government as well that's built yeah. into it so that so mm. it's it's not about trying to win them over because it's an assumption that you know if you don't support us then that will destroy you electorally mm. yep and that look I, I think that brings us to i mean there's twin things here like what what we're um uh, what we want to get is that that basically we, we we'd encourage this show um socialists become involved in the labor party uh and, you know, I think broadly speaking, I think Osman agrees, like, look, an effective way to actually see um, the, the sort of views that you have about, you know, a more equitable society, getting laws that can reflect that is by being in labour. Um, I guess what, what do you think there are obviously big barriers there? Like what are some of the barriers for a more left-wing labour, Osman? And have you got any ideas about how we... Uh, surmount that? I know we've got some really good examples, but, you know, um, you are pretty... 
you more than a lot of people know uh, a lot about the history of how difficult it can be, particularly being someone who's active in New South Wales. Hmm. Yeah, undoubtedly there are a number of barriers to a more left-wing ALP. Um, I, but it's also important to understand what are the internal barriers and what mm-hmm. are the external barriers. Yeah. And also that the internal barriers differ between states. So while, you know, we think about the Labor Party, we think about the National Party, the reality is that it is a federation of state branches and ultimately, you know, the states, for the most part, do their own thing. The National Executive is power and you have the caucus, but each state branch is very different to each other in terms of their rules, their culture, and it's essential to really understand that. Now, in the, in the case of New South Wales, it's a gerrymandered system and it makes it very difficult for left-wing forces even if they organise because it's structured in such a way that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to get rid of the right majority unless there is a national intervention. Um, it's just structured in such a way, you know, how delegates get elected, how delegates get allocated, the fact that conference delegates are essentially elected by conference itself. You know, like about 10% of delegates to conference are effectively elected by conference itself. It's it's ridiculous. Wow. (laughs) It's a very very different situation to the ACT. So, you know, when I moved from New South Wales to the ACT, it was very much a case of, wow, this is so democratic. It's communism. (laughs) Compared to New South Wales. Um, And undoubtedly, I think a more democratic party can make it easier to push for a more left-wing party, Um, especially now that while it doesn't always seem, you know, fantastic, I would say that internal conditions are more favourable to the left than it has been for very many years. So I think the sheer fact that firstly the right-wing social democracy is bereft of an agenda of substance. Mm. the left has obviously championed party reform and its base of support has also grown to the point where it's nearly at parity with the right at ALP National Conference. The right doesn't have a majority anymore. Um, and that's a very different situation than, you know, going back, you know, 10, 15 years ago where the right had an outright majority. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a big change. Um, and, but there are also other internal barriers, so internal dynamics at play, and it becomes really clear when you read, you know, how Labor governments by vehicle and child that these contradictions and problems, barriers within the Labor Party have been around for like a century. They're not new. So, um, they've been there since the formation of the party. So whenever anyone tries to talk about party reform and all the issues, um, it's very likely that those same issues were canvassed in how Labor governments. Um, And how Labor governments talked about the tensions between party conference and whether the parliamentary party does what conference demands, but also these other things about Labor trying to get a broad enough support base, but in the process its agenda feels watered down that it doesn't really appeal to everyone, not everyone is satisfied. And, you know, these are things that I think we've been talking, people have been talking about like the last few years. They're not, it's clear, they've been talking about for the last 100 plus years within the Labor Party. Um, So I don't think there's any easy solution, but I think it's important to understand these contradictions because, you know, whatever you do, there will be contradictions. It's about how you manage those contradictions to further your aims. Um, You know, as socialists, we need to be aware of the nature of the ALP um, it is a party with socialists in it rather than an explicitly socialist party. You know, we're different from many of the European social democratic parties that were at one point Marxist, but also sought to be mass parties. And we got to be aware of this because that influences how marginalisation can happen. Um, so, you know, the clearest example was in the 1980s under the Hawke government where the factionalisation of the party um, led to essentially a coalition between the centre-left and the right factions um, that ganged up to essentially exclude the left from Cabinet despite the fact that a third of the caucus was from the left. 
And, you know, those pressures essentially led to internal splintering within the left. And, and, you know, this is, we can talk about this federally, but taking it back to an ACT context, Mm. you know, it's, you you see that dynamic in the ACT um, where through federal pre-selections. So the, whenever there's been a pre-selection for the federal seat that covers Bill Conan, um, it's happened three times where the left led on primaries but lost in preferences. Yeah. You know, like it's happened multiple times and that, 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 that exists, that tendency exists. And yeah, we've the been, other, yeah. yeah. Battling with uh, left liberalism is, is one of the interesting little sideshows that we have to deal with in the ACT and have had to deal with for a long time. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, certainly I'm trying to get a, a very clear sort of socialist politics to, to cut through to the more, um, you know, wet or more more liberal inclined, getting them interested in, in a class politics has been mm. a, yeah, always a hassle. Yeah, it was like, I, I think, yeah, spot on. The last time we had a pre-selection, which wasn't that long ago, uh, John Falzone running in the um, the inner north seat. Now we that we have three lower house seats. Um, you know, a very well known socialist with a lot of a um, lot of well wishes and a lot of supporters um, uh, around the country had a national profile. But despite that, and despite the large primary vote, uh, wasn't able to get over the line. And that's um, you know disappointing. But like you're saying, Osman, there there are you know there's there's I guess what you're pointing to is it's a, it's a, that's a political barrier, isn't it? But the mm-hmm. organisational one is. Um, well, we need people to join us so we can actually go and prosecute that 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 left wing argument more effectively. Um, but, yeah, but I think the other thing is we, we also have to be very mindful that we need people to join us and organise. Mm. But we also do have this challenge where even when people are aligned to the left and in charge, it doesn't always mean left wing policies and practice. Yeah, so we know it, it really it, well here. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I mean, I mean, the example yeah. that comes to mind is you know the Queensland branch of the party. So the left won control of Queensland about five years ago, and they've done some really great things. So you know, as I've said previously, reversing the privatisation of prisons, really good stuff. You know, fighting outsourcing, um, establishing you know state owned renewable energy companies, but you know, more recently, you've seen it go backwards on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's this challenge where people on the left of the party, we don't really have a good framework and un- where we can really articulate how we approach governing from a left-wing perspective and, you know, figuring out, okay, these are the pressures, these are the tensions, these are the compromises. How do we work out what is acceptable what is not acceptable how do we manage these challenges and i think that is a big issue because if we're relying on simply electing people and somehow saying okay we'll hold you to account by you know pre-selecting you then un- they're not pre-selecting you well a lot of the decisions that are made by governments are like so those as anyone who is a public ser- who has been a public servant knows there are like so many decisions that go for executive governments that can have a huge impact but i don't think we've really articulated an approach to governing yep and managing all those challenges Mm. um because it makes it much harder when these curly questions come up Uh, i mean just for one thing like how particularly the last, I think, 10 years, but it's a much longer running process how um, the Australian public service is kind of de-skilled um, away from being able to manage big um, projects in-house to farming everything from audits to public transport to hospital management to procurement, everything over to the private sector Security and the, the big four consulting firms. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's so there has to be... Um, that the party needs to be able to articulate um, how to address these initial problems as well, um, mm-hmm. if it's to win government and then be effective to wield the public service, which is, you know, a tool um, to its ends. Um, because, you know, we've seen lots of contexts, including in Australia, examples where um, social democratic, even radical governments have come in and then been met with, you know, um, certain entrenched tendencies in in their respective public services um, that are that are actually insurmountable and end up bringing governments down because they're not they're not really sure how to deal with that. Mm. Um, 
back to like with New South Wales, like like what would you what would you say to someone out there um, who's just getting involved, Osmond, about what 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 how they should um, get involved? Like, have you got any thoughts on that at all? Like, yeah, I in think, New South Wales, which yeah, can be a pretty, I think, because I know we try hostile. to help a lot in New South Wales, but we're literally at the point now. It's like, man, New South Wales has got to lift this game. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I think there are a few things about getting involved in New South Wales. So I would say that, and this is my my general rule, that, you know, where it, whatever election is happening, you can always find a good left-wing candidate who needs help. So there's all, like, you know, local council elections, state elections, federal elections, you can always find a good left-wing Labor candidate, you know, and you should help out, help them out. And I think that is a practical thing that can be done. I'd also add that there's a lot of thinking about what Labor should do federally, but I don't think as much attention has really turned to, you know, what can Labor do at a state or local level, mm-hmm. you know, beyond, okay, let's, you know, fund public services more. I mean, that's I think that fund public services more, maybe have a bit of law reform, but... I actually think there needs to be more thinking about, okay, what does a left Labor agenda look like at a local level and a state level that isn't, you know, I, I, and this is not any attempt to say it's bad, but that isn't just, you know, sort of progressive law reform in symbolic acts. You know, symbolism matters. You know, socially liberal progressive changes do matter. But I think that's, Unfortunately, at a state level, that can and local level, that's often the limits of thinking. Because mm. I think the example is if you can't even get a labor control council at a local level to have and implement some, you know, left wing agenda, a left wing agenda, how can you really expect a state labor party to do us? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's part of the challenge. Thinking about, you know, what can you do considering? Compared to a lot of other countries, local government is a lot, a lot less powerful. But it's it, it's that need for creative thinking and trying to figure out what are the gaps, what what do people care about, how can you link it to everyday experiences, and why it matters. No, that's really good advice, Osmo. Mm. Uh, and yeah, to our listeners out there, um, and look, and our ICT listeners, uh, we do all, all the time. We hit on to go and help out New South Wales, but. Um, yeah, being involved and looking for ways out there to um, help out candidates elsewhere and uh, around the country is a, a good thing to do, mm. as well as um, I think that question of like um, a bit of thought about how uh, engaging with your local community politics and a thought about well, how do you go about carrying out a, an, an agenda that you've you've consulted and engaged and you empowered your local community to want to get behind it is probably something that. I've noticed is is missing. I know there's plenty of local councils that Labor doesn't have. They don't have tickets. They don't have, you know, they don't even have anything. But that's more of a regional issue in the sense that it is one of those strange things in, um, well, not strange, that we've seen, you know, branches demobilised in regional New South Wales. and It's and especially ridiculous that many of those regional councils, it's yeah. like a, at least they have at least nine councillors and they're elected through, you know, one thing. It's like no wards. So yeah. it's actually... Like Labor can at least get one councillor in a yeah. lot of those councils. Ah, what a waste! It's not good. Mm, well, yeah, if you're outside of a of a major city, that's definitely something to to start paying attention to. Um, what else do you want to hit? Um, I think we've yeah. Look, is there anything else about like the I guess the with the structural barriers that you th- you think we need to tackle more or or uh, the political <laughs> argument, the political I'm, politics I'm, of how we yeah. are, you know, that changed the reform to happen. I think mean, this is the thing. I think the thing is that we have a lot of debate about party reform and I don't think party reform is important, but one of the challenges is that all our energy can sometimes be sucked into a focus yeah. on party reform, you know, legalistic rules. Yeah. Um, as opposed to thinking, okay, you know, these while we do need to change the rules, how does the existing structure, how can we use the existing structures? Mm-hmm. How do we use the gaps in the existing structures to do more? You know, yeah. I, I, I think it's it's that's that's the thing that that I, I think about more and more, you know, 
what are the creative ways of doing something a bit different that can have an impact? Because, you know, party reform is a hard slog. You know, there are wins, but they are gradual um, unless, you know, there's a sweeping change. Um, and I think that's important. Um, I guess the other thing that I wanted to flag, you know, from a perspective of someone on the left and, you know, the situation of the left depend differs from state branch to state branch. But I think it's important that being on the left, we avoid being dogmatic. That doesn't mean we, you know, step away from our values, but I think it's important to be very pluralistic in our approach mm -hmm. to make it harder for others to polarise against the left. Um, so the, the way I'd like to describe it is to be, you know, be openly tribal. So, you know, we are of the left. We know what we want to achieve, but we're willing to reach out beyond our factional tribe to, you know, on those things that we do agree on. Yep. Hmm. Nah, that's good. Hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, so actually, so one of the other questions we had here is sort of um, trying to think about what lessons we can learn. And we touched, we touched on it a little bit at the start, but I want to just come back to lessons we can learn from the left overseas in the recent years. And one thing I'm wondering about is the fact that one of the big common factor that, that characterized two big, um, you know, Anglophone left surges, obviously being uh, Corbyn and, and Sanders in the last few years, um, was the sort of presence of a unifying personality, a person that people, you know, could get enthusiastic about and passionate about and who like personally embodied a set mm. of like collective needs and orientations toward the future as well. Um, wouldn't say that we've got that in Australia, although I have no interest in getting into leadership speculation in the Labor Party. But I suppose, do you think that, you know, have you learned from that that it's a necessary ingredient for less insurgencies um, at the moment, at this point in history in the Anglophone world? Or can we do it without a sort of, you know, messianic figure in Australia? Look, I, I think a figure is important to any viable political project. So, it, you know, it's a necessary ingredient for greater political success. Um, but we also have to think about what its limitations are. So when we talk about Corbyn or Sanders, I think it's important to reflect, you know, it's easier to think about, oh, yeah, this was always going to happen. But, you know, it was neither planned or foreseen. You know, Sanders was trying to get, you know, Elizabeth Warren to run. Um, Corbyn was like the last person, the socialist campaign group just was like, we just need to get on the ballot, you know, and he, Corbyn was the least offensive person to a lot of the rest of the parliamentary Labor Party in the UK at that time. Um, and they thought, okay, we'll just let you, let you go. You can get 15% of the votes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's important to understand that the leader is important, but it was also about taking advantage of the situation that existed and the fact there was also a vacuum and a lack of inspiring alternatives. Um, and what, as a result, they strangely became those, I guess, figures to rally around. And as they succeeded, there was a sense of viability and momentum mm. grew. Um, mainly the, the right people at the right time. And uh, there was a book that was, I think, released last year called The Digital Party um, that kind of touched on this, about this idea of hyper leaders. So they're kind of political leaders that are almost uh, like a celebrity figure um, that with a base that I think it was, it was called a super base that extends beyond the, the traditional party base. Yep. Um, and they've often utilised, you know, digital tools to bypass the existing party bureaucracy. And you, you sort of, you've seen that with, you know, Bernie Sanders and you saw it with, you know, momentum on the Corbyn. Um, but, you know, going even further back, I think there are other lessons that those, that we on the left can learn from overseas. Um, so there's a really good book from the 1980s by this um, author called Patrick Said, I think, S-E-Y-D, and it's about the it's called the rise and fall of the Labor left, and it's about the 1980s Labor left, you know, when the Benites yeah. nearly took over the party. And it's really fascinating because I think it provides a few lessons for how 
a left within a Labor Party needs to navigate the situation, you know, why they succeeded, but also why they failed in the end. And so what the left did was they capitalised on disillusionment, you know, they used their organisational skills, you know, using party disputes to add force to its arguments. And they used their opponents' arrogance, disdain and ineptitude um, to get stuff done. And so just as a classic example, like the reason why there was an initial move to the direct election of the leadership in the UK is because one of the right-wing unions put up a proposal um, that they thought, okay, this is a way of sort of trying to combat what the left wants to do. They didn't think it was going to get up, but it got up. So just that, that's, that's, a, that's a classic example. Another example is just the poor organising during that leadership election where Corbyn got elected, um, the fact that during Corbyn's first campaign, his campaign was the only one that had a join link on their campaign website, you know, <laughs> where you could register to be a supporter, yeah. like, like, like basic things. And yeah. uh, it's things like that. Um, but what um, Patrick points out is that at, in the 80s, there was a sort of lack of strategic thinking by the Labor left and a narrow focus on the party leadership. Um, so, you know, the left focused on party reform at the expense of broadening its appeal and developing a coherent program that had contemporary relevance. Um, I think arguably they learned that lesson and it inverted um, mm. more recently. Yeah, um, hardly. Yeah. Yeah. But but also, I, uh, even like not so recently, like the world transformed has become this big annual conference where the left does in, in the UK does spell out a very tangible material and sometimes also, you know, utopian and idealistic yeah. vision for a future for, for the country. Um, and that's not really something that the left in Australia is producing. No, it doesn't. And I, I think it's important, like those links with extra parliamentary movements, you know, in civil society and also creating that like broader ecosystem, the infrastructure around party, like the party, you know, from in the UK and the US, you know, from Momentum to the Democratic Socialists of America, but also like the work that's coming out of think tanks like Autonomy and Commonwealth, you know, the People's Policy Project, as well as outlets like, you know, Navarra and Jacobin. I think they, they're very useful and they're, they're important to, you know, grow networks, educate people, you know, that left ecosystem matters. Um, I don't think it should be a substitute for wider engagement and contestation in the public realm, um, but it's necessary. Um, and I think that is, the, it's one of those things where you need to understand that it is important, you know, education, but there are limitations. And, you know, the, a classic example is, you know, if you look at the Austrian socialist stream, um, the 1920s, where in the Red Vienna period, where you know their great achievement was obviously public housing, mm. which was very much a pragmatic response to a housing crisis, um, they tried to build this mat, like this sort of socialist culture by setting up you know a range of mass organisations, covering everything from sports to film, yep. as much as they could because they thought you know we need to shape people, shape their views, um, but that also had limited success. So I think we need to be mindful that, you know, the, the left ecosystem matters and it plays an important role, but we can't just only create our own ecosystem to, um, you know, keep the rest of the world out. Yeah, mm. it's, what, it's when you get the questions of economic power. It's, it's, mm. Yeah. I, 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 the, only, the other point I want to just add is that, you know, with things like, you know, the Sanders campaign in Corbyn, it was very much a digital party model, Um and that relied on rallying what, for the most part, were, you know, educated outsiders. And while it could bypass, you know, the party's bureaucratic structures through direct elections, it, do, it still did struggle when it required organising in the party's bureaucratic structures. So, you know, they won the leadership, but they struggled in, you know, mandatory reselection ballot, trigger ballots for mandatory reselections, you know, winning positions in the party bureaucracy itself, which required a different type of organising. Um, so I think that's also something that we need to be mindful of, that it's, it's it can be different kinds of organising for different kinds of models within the party. Yeah. Mm, and that's hugely important, actually. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Cool. 
Um, well, I think that we've gone through everything. Oz, thanks so much for joining us. Was there um, anything you, you have to plug that you're uh, you're up to at the moment? Oh, I think too much. Too much. I'm on it doing at the moment. I guess. <laughs> the, <laughs> I, I guess the, the main thing I'm sort of pushing at the moment is just trying to talk about the importance of greater diversity within the Labor Party. Um, and the point I like to tell people is that when you think about Australia, based on the best data that we have, because the data is pretty poor, about one in five people have non-European ancestry. And if you just think about that, think about the rest, how our institutions look like. Um, it's not really reflective of that diversity, but it also has implications as well electorally because if we are not reflective of the communities we seek to represent, we're not going to have the links in there. And we are seeing these problems in New South Wales, um, particularly at a state level where um, the coalition has really dug into multicultural communities and it has will have future implications for Labor governments, the fact that Labor cannot win because they have dug into multicultural religious and small business networks. Mm. And, and no no shortage of um, of Southeast Asian, South Asian, and, you know, even um, from other areas of, of the world of, of people, recent migrants who are, you know, aspirational kind of um, middle class or, or, you know, business oriented people who are happy to run for the Liberal Party. Um, yeah, and do that racist. organizing in their, in <laughs> yeah. their, yeah, in their, in their communities. So, yeah, because I think one of the things that people in the Labor Party haven't realized is that the, they still have this idea of the Liberal Party as John Howard's Liberal Party yeah. or the or the or Peter Dutton. But yeah. if you look at New South Wales, the Libs at a state level have completely detoxified. Yep, like they do not have that reputation. Yeah, mm. same um, in the ACT, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people within the Labor Party who have not realised that. And in many ways, the Libs are getting better than us when it comes to diverse representation within the, in their candidates. Mm. And yeah. it's something that we need to take seriously. Absolutely. Yeah. And how, what, I mean, how do you think, what's the best way to do that, um, Osman? Like, I mean, I know one, one, end, one I would reach for is, you know, we need to engage in communities and bring more people in to join and, mm. and um, cultivate and encourage and develop, you know, people like recognising, you know, the case someone's pretty good, let's, let's you know, it's a system, let's, let's get behind them. Um, the other one, some people, I, I don't know, some, sometimes are quotas. I, I'm not sure where, where you're at. Like on, well, on the other, what do we need to, to do with that? Because I know in ACT we we have got um, gotten well. I think we had a um, we had an excellent um, uh, Aboriginal lady run a, a little while ago, but she she didn't get up unfortunately. But she, I think she was like the only one that was from a culturally or linguistically diverse background. We had a, a few more last two, but it's been pretty. Um, Pretty but that, look, it is. I mean, to have in, in defence of that, mm. we we're a lot more multicultural than we mm. used to be, but we're still we're not like the, the diaspora that yeah, you know, I, in, um, I, yeah, in it, Sydney, it, you know, it, metropolis. I think it, it's a challenging thing. I think the fact that we are far behind other countries doesn't help. Yeah. The fact yeah. that we have poor data, um, but I think for me, it's about normalising this idea that when our party isn't diverse, it's a problem. You know, yeah. when we for example, you know, when we have a panel and it's all men, like there's an initial reaction, like people know, no, this is not okay, and they act. And I guess for me it's about getting to the point when we, when we realise, oh, hey, actually, the people we have, not just as candidates, but, you know, in elected positions in the party don't reflect the community, and that's an issue because if people who want to get involved don't see themselves in the party, they're not going to be involved or join. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. So there's a, there is a petition you've got going for in New South Wales. Um, what's that one? Where, where can people find that one? That's for New South Wales party members, isn't it? Yeah, it's mostly for New South Wales party members. Um, so it's, I'll also send through the link. So if you could include that. Yeah, we'll throw um, it so, in, the, in the show description and in our tweet as well. When we put yep, it up. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the idea is because we're moving um, a platform change at conference, so the idea is to really start this conversation in New South Wales um, yep. that we actually need to take it seriously. And that's an interesting example, Osman, I thought of what you were saying before about looking for ways to be um, creative 
in terms of getting getting around to the our political opponents because not there are people in the new south wales right who are also you know I, I i've met plenty of people in new south wales right who are from culturally linguistically diverse backgrounds have probably gone actually yeah no we have got a interesting you know even if the, the debate actually actually having the debate is part of the win really isn't it and then trying to get it foremost in people's heads that you know, let's look yeah. at our so look at the New South Wales Labor, you look at the um what is the admin committee? I mean, gee whiz. Um there's a lot of people from the same background going on sitting on the New South Wales admin committee. Why they post a photograph of it is beyond me, but they can't give you a photograph of where your local branch might go and meet, but they can definitely tell you what the admin committee are, who who sits on it. That's right. Yeah, but we'll get those links, Osman, and love to put that uh, put that out. But um it's been really great talking to you, Osman. Um, tonight and um, all the best to you and, and the comrades in New South Wales and we'll no doubt help where we where we can as we often end up being asked to. Mm. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. yeah, thanks again, Osman. Great having you. Um, and yeah, you can find Oz um, on Twitter at uh, Red Rabble Oz. Uh, was, is it with a Z or an O? Uh, sorry, an S at the end. Uh, Z. Z, there you go. Uh, cool. Thanks very much, Oz. Um, it's been great. Great, thanks. Cheers.